Hello, and welcome to episode number 65 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacadamian. In the long history of the modern UFO phenomenon, a key and iconic moment stands out as of particular import. I speak of a rumored crash of a sophisticated aerial vehicle in the desert terrain near Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. The event prompted an initial acknowledgement by the government that this was indeed a moment of the greatest significance, the crash of an actual alien craft, apparently not of this world and piloted by beings of a decidedly non-human nature. Of course, as many of us now know, that initial acknowledgement was quickly retracted, giving rise to a series of ever more mundane and suspect explanations involving a downed weather balloon and the like. And when rumors spread that the crashed vehicle included actual entities, the cover story was that these were merely crash test dummies, mistaken for living, breathing beings of extraterrestrial origin. While many deeply invested in ufological history long questioned the official account of what happened that night all those years ago in the American desert southwest, evidence to demonstrate that the prosaic explanations were propaganda aimed at covering up something more world-shaking, was scant. That was at least until 1997, some 50 years after the event in question, when a retired colonel of the U.S. Army emerged to offer a new account of what he claimed really happened that night. His claims provided sweet vindication for those long convinced that what slammed into the New Mexico desert in 1947 was anything but conventional. Colonel Philip Corso, the man making these claims, suggested not only that an alien craft really was recovered that night, but that indeed alien entities were also at the wheel, as it were. He even claimed to have laid eyes on one of those aliens in a later turn of fate while he was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas. And his claims didn't stop there. He also stated that he came to be involved in a scheme to take technology recovered from the craft and farm it out to American industry in order to jumpstart the American advantage over adversaries of the time, such as the Soviet Union. He also suggested this was done under the cover of a foreign technology desk, done in such a way as to cover the tracks of the true origin of this revolutionary tech. It goes without saying that these claims are as bold as they come. If true, they are truly world-shaking, with implications that effectively rewrite not just the history of the 20th century, but once and for all settle the matter of our place in the universe. But how credible are these claims? And what historical lines of evidence exist to either support or refute them? These are the very matters we'll seek to delve into in this, the 65th episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As we begin this week's episode, I would just like to reflect on the fact that in some ways it's surprising that it's taken up to my 65th episode before I've directly addressed Roswell. We've touched on it in passing when talking about other crashes and, of course, just covering the history of the UFO phenomenon. But, of course, this crash comes up quite a bit because it is probably the quintessential moment in ufology from the 20th century, the quintessential moment from modern ufology. And of course, this book really brought everything to the forefront again, 
because while there were rumors that always emerged throughout the decades since 1947, it was when this book was released, as I said, in 1997, 50 years after the initial event, that really brought this to the fore once again, and there was heated debate around what really happened and how credible were the claims of this colonel of the U.S. Army who came forward. The book is The Day After Roswell, and it was co-authored by William J. Burns and Philip Corso. Philip Corso, of course, is the colonel from the U.S. Army who was making these claims, and it's quite the story. Not only does he claim that he came across an alien body, a cadaver, as it were, in a crate in liquid while he was at Fort Riley, Kansas, but as it turns out, by some strange twist of fate, he was later in charge of a foreign technology desk that was tasked with taking this technology recovered from the Roswell crash, and we'll get into whether or not it was really a crash later on, and then farming that technology out to U.S. industry and doing so in such a way as it would be hard to ever trace back that this was ever alien tech to begin with. Many of these industries receiving some of this strange technology assumed it was probably coming from either recovery of Chinese or Russian craft. They weren't told, of course, that this was potentially an ET vehicle that they were receiving technology from. This is the publisher's description of this book, The Day After Roswell, by William J. Burns and Philip Corso. Quote, a landmark expose firmly grounded in fact the day after Roswell ends the decades-old controversy surrounding the mysterious crash of an unidentified aircraft at Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. Backed by documents newly declassified through the Freedom of Information Act, Colonel Philip J. Corso retired, a member of President Eisenhower's National Security Council and former head of the Foreign Technology Desk at the U.S. Army's Research and Development Department, has come forward to reveal his personal stewardship of alien artifacts from the Roswell crash. He tells us how he spearheaded the Army's reverse engineering project that led to today's integrated circuit chips, fiber optics, lasers, super tenacity fibers, and seeded the Roswell alien technology to giants of American industry. Laying bare the U.S. government's shocking role in the Roswell incident, what was found, the cover-up, and how they used alien artifacts to change the course of 20th century history, The Day After Roswell is an extraordinary memoir that not only forces us to reconsider the past, but also our role in the universe, unquote. Now, as a quick aside, in preparation for this week's episode, in addition to reading the book, The Day After Roswell, I also perused a variety of interviews that Corso did over time. There are several interviews that really are gems of history that I would recommend you listen to if you get a chance. One of them is Art Bell's Dreamland radio show, as well as his interview with Corso on Coast to Coast AM. He interviewed Corso on both of those programs. In the Coast to Coast AM episode, Corso was joined by Dr. John Alexander, who we've also mentioned many times on this program. At the time, Alexander was there to support Colonel Corso and back up his claims because Alexander had done some research and had found that indeed Corso was who he said he was and was in the places he said he was in the claims he made in the book. Now, what's interesting in terms of the history here is that later Alexander came to question some of Corso's claims. 
but those I've talked to suggest that perhaps Alexander just didn't have the clearance he thought he did to be able to determine whether or not all of those claims were accurate. But anyway, as I say, in this interview I listened to, which you can find on podcast platforms, by the way, this classic interview on Coast to Coast AM between Art Bell and Dr. John Alexander and Philip Corso, I was reminded of an event that happened in my life sometime around the year 2000 or 2001. As it turns out, I was driving through the American Southwest, in the desert, so to speak, in the middle of the night, and I was listening to Art Bell's program. So you can imagine the scene. I'm listening to Art Bell. It's dark. I'm in the middle of nowhere in the New Mexico desert, driving in the middle of the night. And what happens next was quite shocking because over top of my car came a giant black triangle. It came up from behind me silently and suddenly was over top of me and then kept going forward. It shocked me to the nth degree. I'm sure you can imagine. As it turns out, I'm pretty sure it was a B-2 bomber of the time because we know they are housed in that area, or at least they were then. But again, I just ask you to picture the scene. You're listening to Art Bell talking about UFOs. You're in the middle of the New Mexico desert, in the middle of the night, alone, and suddenly this giant black triangle flies over you. Again, pretty sure it was a B-2 bomber, but it was a shocking incident that I will never forget. All right, enough about that little vignette from my own lifetime. Let's get back to the book where the book goes into the actual crash at Roswell. Now we're going to pick it up at a time where radar operators were noticing these strange objects showing up on the screen, darting incredibly fast. And it says of these objects, quote, they were pulsating, it was the only way you could describe it, glowing more intensely and then dimly as tremendous thunderstorms broke out over the desert. Steve Arnold posted to the Roswell Airfield Control Tower that evening, had never seen a blip behave like this as it darted across the screen between sweeps at speeds over a thousand miles an hour. All the while it was pulsating, throbbing almost, until while the skies over the base exploded in a biblical display of thunder and lightning, it arced to the lower left-hand quadrant of the screen, seemed to disappear for a moment, then exploded in a brilliant white fluorescence and evaporated right before his very eyes. The screen was clear, the blips were gone, and as controllers looked around at each other and at the CIC officers in the room, the same thought arose in all their minds. An object, whatever it was, had crashed. The military response was put into motion within seconds. This was a national security issue. Jump on that thing in the desert and bring it back before anyone else could find it. Unquote. Moving forward in the book a little bit. Quote, it was still dark when, from another direction, Steve Arnold, riding shotgun in one of the staff cars in the convoy of recovery vehicles from the 509th, reached the crash site first. Even before their trucks rolled into position, an MP lieutenant from the first jeep posted a picket of sentries, and an engineer ordered his unit to string a series of floodlights around the area. Then Arnold's car pulled up, and he got his own first glimpse of the wreckage. But it wasn't really wreckage at all, not in the way he'd seen plane crashes during the war. From what he could make out through the purple darkness, the dark-skinned craft seemed mostly intact and had lost no large pieces. Sure, there were bits and pieces of debris all over the area, but the aircraft itself hadn't broken apart on impact the way a normal airplane would, and the whole scene was still shrouded in darkness. Now I'm going to jump again ahead a little bit further into the book, 
when actually the scene is fully illuminated. Quote, In the stark light of the military searchlights, Arnold saw the entire landscape of the crash. He thought it looked more like a crash landing because the craft was intact, except for a split seam running lengthwise along the side and the steep 45-plus degree angle of the craft's incline. He assumed it was a craft, even though it was like no airplane he'd ever seen. It was small, but it looked more like the flying wing shape of an old Curtis than an ellipse or a saucer. And it had two tail fins on the top sides of the delta's feet that pointed up and out. He angled himself as close to the split seam of the craft as he could get without stepping in front of the workers in hazardous material suits who were checking the site for radiation. And that was when he saw them in the shadow, little dark gray figures, maybe four, four and a half feet in length, sprawled across the ground. Are those people? Arnold heard someone say as medics rushed up with stretchers to the knife-like laceration along the side of the craft through which the bodies had either crawled or tumbled. Arnold looked around the perimeter of light and saw another figure, motionless but menacing nevertheless, and another leaning against a small rise in the desert sand. There was a fifth figure near the opening of the craft. As radiation technicians gave all clear and medics ran to the bodies with stretchers, Arnold sneaked a look through the rip in the aircraft and stared out through the top. Jehoshaphat! It looked like the sun was already up. Just to make sure, Steve Arnold looked around the outside again and sure enough, it was still too dark to call it daylight. But through the top of the craft, as if he were looking through a lens, Arnold could see an eerie stream of light. Not daylight or lamplight, but light nevertheless. He'd never seen anything like that before and thought that maybe this was a weapon the Russians or somebody else had developed. The scene at the crash site was a microcosm of chaos. Technicians with specific tasks such as medics, hazardous material sweepers, signal men, and radio operators, and sentries were carrying out their jobs as methodically and unthinkingly as if they were Emperor Ming's brainwashed furnace-stoking zombies from the Flash Gordon serials. But everyone else, including the officers, were simply awestruck. They'd never seen anything like this before, and they stood there, overpowered it seemed, by simply a general sense of amazement that would not let them out of its grip. Hey, this one's alive, Arnold heard, and turned around to see one of the little figures struggling on the ground. With the rest of the medics, he ran over to it and watched as it shuddered and made a crying sound that echoed not in the air, but in his brain. He heard nothing through his ears, but felt an overwhelming sense of sadness as the little figure convulsed on the ground, its oversized egg-shaped skull flipping from side to side as if it was trying to gasp for something to breathe, Unquote. Okay, so let's step back for a moment and reflect on what we just read. Number one, we should acknowledge that obviously Philip Corso wasn't on hand that day. This is not his account. Obviously, he is putting together other people's accounts to give us this description of the actual crash site and what people were experiencing as they saw these apparently gray aliens crawling out of the craft close to death. We also make note of the fact that the craft itself was largely intact, which was surprising to the people on the scene, apparently, because you would expect more debris, more pieces, large pieces separated with such a crash. But as it turns out, this craft was mostly intact, which again raises questions about whether or not that was actually a crash. But we'll get to that in a moment. 
I also want to bring to your attention that it was telepathic communication going on here because when one of these beings cried out in desperation as it was dying, perhaps gasping for air, because perhaps it wasn't in the controlled environment of the craft anymore, or perhaps its suit had been punctured in some way, so it was more exposed to our atmosphere, as it cried out in despair, these men heard it in their minds. They didn't hear it audibly. They heard it telepathically. We should make note of that. Now, touching on the crash scene, again, what many people have suggested is because of the nature of the craft that it didn't really break up, you could say it's just remarkable technology, remarkably strong exterior hull, for instance. But others have suggested this was actually a ruse, that it wasn't really a crash. It was more like a deposit on the desert either by ETs or perhaps even by time-traveling humans who actually wanted to seed us with this technology. That's an interesting notion. We will touch on that more later. But by the way, perhaps you're thinking, well, if this was a ruse, if this was really not a crash, but more of a deposit meant to change our timeline or to change our history by ETs, why would they sacrifice some of their own? Because clearly these beings seem to be in some sort of distress. Well, as we go on in the book, we find that even Corso suggests these may have been a kind of advanced amalgam of biology and AI. Engineered biological beings, but still AI, that were actually seamlessly involved with the craft itself that also was a kind of seamless amalgam of technology and biology. Yes, even the craft itself, according to some accounts, was alive in some way and actually changed color the way you might expect flesh to when it died, so to speak, on the desert floor. And by the way, those kind of accounts sound more realistic to me. That's what I would expect of an ET craft because you would expect the technology to be significantly beyond ours. And so when I hear about these kinds of notions, rather than just your standard metallic craft, nuts and bolts and rivets and whatnot. That sounds compelling to me. We should note that some people reported this at the scene. And by the way, as we go through the different claims that Corso makes and the different elements of the story that are reported, it's worth noting what your initial response is to different elements. Does it make you feel like this story is more realistic, more likely to have happened the way that Corso is describing, or less likely? Does it make the story seem more credible or not so credible. It's worth noting how that changes as you hear different elements and to ask yourself why you are persuaded one way or another by these different elements. Again, for me, when I think of extraterrestrial craft coming from extrasolar civilizations, my sense is, as I've said before, the chances of them having technology close to our own within a few generations seems highly, highly, highly unlikely. It's almost preposterously unlikely. So when I hear cases like this, where supposedly even the craft itself is perhaps alive, and that the beings involved are not actually biological organisms like us, but some sort of advanced engineered AI that uses organic materials. And as Corso goes on to say, perhaps even some of these beings were actually part of the craft. For instance, one of the beings, he believes, was the navigation system, basically. And they worked seamlessly with the craft itself to accomplish their goal. But they weren't soulful beings, not purely biological soulful beings as we are. Again, according to some of Corso's claims. 
Very interesting. Okay, enough about the crash itself. Now let's fast forward to when Corso claims he had his first encounter with this entire story personally. And as it turns out, it was when he saw a body, a cadaver of one of these aliens from the Roswell crash while he was stationed as a post-duty officer at Fort Riley, Kansas. And we'll pick it up from the book once again. He is on his duty doing his rounds when he hears one of the men he is in charge of whisper to him, quote, Major Corso, a voice hissed out of the darkness. It had an edge of terror and excitement to it. What the hell are you doing in there, Brownie? I began cussing out the figure that peeked out at me from behind the door. Have you gone off your rocker? He was supposed to be outside the building, not hiding in a doorway. It was a breach of duty. You don't understand, Major, he whispered again. You have to see this. Better be good, I said, as I walked over to where he was standing and waited for him outside the door. Now you get out here where I can see you, I ordered. Brown popped his head out from behind the door. You know what's in there, he asked. Whatever was going on, I didn't want to play any games. The post-duty sheet for that night read that the veterinary building was off-limits to everyone. Not even the sentries were allowed inside because whatever had been loaded in had been classified as no access. What was Brown doing on the inside? Brownie, you know you're not supposed to be in there, I said. Get out here and tell me what's going on. He stepped out from inside the door, and even through the shadow I could see that his face was a dead pale, just as if he'd seen a ghost. You won't believe this, he said. I don't believe it, and I just saw it. What are you talking about, I asked. Unquote. Now we're going to jump ahead to when Corso goes inside the building and finds this body. Quoting from the book again, quote, The top was already loose. I was right. This one had just been opened. I jimmied the top back and forth, continuing to loosen the nails that had been pried up with a nail claw until I felt them come out of the wood. And now we're going to jump ahead to what he finds inside this crate that he's jimmied open. Quote, The contents enclosed in a thick glass container were submerged in a thick, light blue liquid, almost as heavy as a gelling solution of diesel fuel. But the object was floating, actually suspended and not sitting on the bottom with a fluid over top, and it was soft and shiny as the underbelly of a fish. At first I thought it was a dead child they were shipping somewhere, but this was no child. It was a four-foot, human-shaped figure with arms, bizarre-looking, four-fingered hands, I didn't see a thumb, thin legs and feet, and an oversized incandescent light bulb-shaped head that looked like it was floating over a balloon gondola for a chin. I know I must have cringed at first, but then I had the urge to pull off the top of the liquid container and touch the pale gray skin. But I couldn't tell whether it was skin because it also looked like a very thin one-piece head-to-toe fabric covering the creature's flesh. Its eyeballs must have been rolled way back in its head because I couldn't see any pupils or iris or anything that resembled a human eye. But the eye sockets themselves were oversized and almost almond-shaped and pointed down to its tiny nose, which didn't really protrude from the skull. It was more like the tiny nose of a baby that never grew as the child grew, and it was mostly nostril. The creature's skull was overgrown to the point where all of its facial features, such as they were, were arranged absolutely frontally, occupying only a small circle on the lower part of the head. The protruding ears of a human were non-existent. Its cheeks had no definition, 
and there were no eyebrows or any indications of facial hair. The creature had only a tiny flat slit for a mouth, and it was completely closed, resembling more of a crease or indentation between the nose and the bottom of the chinless skull than a fully functioning orifice. I would find out years later how it communicated, but at that moment in Kansas, I could only stand there in shock over the clearly non-human face suspended in front of me in a semi-liquid preservative, unquote. Okay, so once again, let's step back and reflect on what we just read. This was Corso's first encounter with anything to do with ETs personally. Again, he later on took over the foreign technology desk in which part of his job involved looking into the recovered technology from the Roswell craft, allegedly, and then he would farm this out to U.S. industry as part of a plan he concocted with a General Trudeau under whom he worked. We should make the point that outside of this encounter at Fort Riley, Kansas, when he saw this body of an alien, apparently, and then later taking over the foreign technology desk under General Trudeau, Corso claims he had a fairly average career, did very well, fought in World War II, ran various programs, worked at the White House for a while under Eisenhower. So it's not like his entire career was focused on aliens or ETs or UFOs. But there were these couple moments in his career that really did focus on this. And I now want to move forward to a section when he is actually running that foreign technology desk. And he's looking over not just the technology that is being passed to him, allegedly again, from the Roswell crash, but he's also reading reports on the extraterrestrials that were found. The one that he saw, for instance, was one of these, apparently. And here they use the term EBE, Extraterrestrial Biological Entity. And at one point, he's reviewing a document that was prepared by a doctor regarding the examination of one of these creatures. And this is what that report said, quote, The skin also shows a different atomic alignment in a way that appears the skin is supposed to protect the vital organs from cosmic ray or wave action or gravitational forces that we don't yet understand. The overall medical report suggests that the medical examiners are more surprised at the similarities between the being found in the spacecraft Note, NSC reports refer to this creature as extraterrestrial biological entity, EBE, and human beings than they are at the differences, especially the brain which is bigger in the EBE, but not at all unlike ours. If we consider similar biological factors that affect human beings, like long-distance runners whose hearts and lungs are larger than average, hill and mountain dwellers whose lung capacity is greater than those who live closer to sea level, and even natural athletes whose long striated muscle alignment is different from those who are not athletes, can we not assume that the EBEs who have fallen into our possession represent the end process of genetic engineering designed to adapt them to long space voyages within an electromagnetic wave environment at speeds which create the physical conditions described by Einstein's general theory of relativity. And then a very interesting post note is added here. Quote, note for the record, Dr. Herman Oberth suggests we consider the Roswell craft from the New Mexico desert not a spacecraft, but a time machine. His technical report on propulsion will follow. Unquote. 
Now let's step back for a moment and reflect on what we just read again, because that was a very interesting section. Number one, the doctors that are examining these cadavers are surprised by how similar they are in many ways to human bodies, that while there are differences, they're not beyond the realm of imagination as being part of an evolutionary process even. And then later on, one of these people investigating the entire scene suggests that the craft itself may not be a spacecraft, but perhaps better described as a time machine. Now, put those two things together. The fact that these beings look remarkably human, humanoid, perhaps even an example of the process of evolution thousands of years into the future might take something like a modern human and turn it into something like this gray alien. When you add in technology and improvements that will allow us to engineer and, again, create an amalgamation between AI and biology, it's not a stretch to imagine that we ourselves may create creatures like this in the future. And when you add to that the fact that some people even suggested that the craft itself was perhaps not a spacecraft, but a time machine, then, of course, we have quite a bit of evidence pointing in the direction, perhaps, of the future human hypothesis that we discussed on previous podcasts. And again, if you wanted to cover up what you were doing, the true nature of your operation, which was perhaps to change the course of history, alter the timeline, then you would do so by creating a ruse, letting contemporaries of our time believe these are actually aliens from an extraterrestrial source when all along they are actually us from the future. It's a possibility that's fascinating and well worth considering based on the details we just discussed. All right, so just to make this clear again, Corso, along with General Trudeau, were basically at this point taking recovered technology from the Roswell crash, allegedly, and they were farming this out to giants of U.S. technology. Why? Because they wanted to give U.S. technology, U.S. industry, an advantage over our adversaries of the time, chiefly the Soviet Union. Now, one of the questions I've always had about this claim that Corso made that actually the course of technology development in the 20th century was largely driven, or at least partially driven in some major ways, by recovered alien crafts, UFOs, is that there is not much of a paper trail suggesting this really happened. We don't see these massive leaps in technological development suggesting something was seeded from out of nowhere, so to speak. But one of the things this book makes clear is they did their very best to cover their tracks in that regard by only passing the technology to people who are already doing groundbreaking work in the field. In other words, they would target people who are already at the very cutting edge of a particular technological field, and they would seed them with this material, again, not telling them where it came from. So perhaps they thought it was recovered Soviet or Chinese tech or something like that. And by doing this, they would actually file for the patents when they made the breakthroughs, when they're able to reverse engineer, as it were, some of this technology. And by doing it in this manner, not letting the people who developed the technology know where it's coming from, and only passing it to such people because they were already at the very edge, the very cutting edge of their fields, this allowed for a largely invisible process to take place that would be very difficult to trace back and confirm at a later date. What's also interesting is Corso claims he did this because 
There were people within the CIA, for instance, who were actually agents working for the Soviet Union, and he was as concerned, as was General Trudeau, with these double agents learning about this material and passing it off to the Soviets as he was about the general public finding out. So there were numerous reasons why they took this approach, but again, it's ingenious and at least offers a possibility, a plausible explanation for how this may have happened if indeed this was the case. And by the way, if you're curious about the kinds of technologies that supposedly were seeded into U.S. industry as a result of the tech that was recovered at Roswell, this included allegedly image intensifiers, in other words, night vision, fiber optics, super tenacity fibers, lasers, molecular alignment metallic alloys, integrated circuits, micro miniaturization of logic boards, HARP, which stands for High Altitude Research Project, portable atomic generators, irradiated food, third brain guidance systems, i.e. EBE headbands that interface with the brain itself, and particle beams, as in the Star Wars or SDI anti-missile energy weapons, and finally, electromagnetic propulsion systems. All right, now I'd like to move into a section of the book that includes claims or at least interpretations that I actually have major questions about. And that has to do with the way that Corso seemed to assume, as did his superiors like Trudeau, that various elements that are part of the so-called UFO phenomenon were the result of a single actor, which as you know on this podcast, I have questioned that many times, but they seem to leap to that conclusion. Take for instance this section of the book, quote, those were hard times, made even harder because the U.S. military also knew that not just the free world, but the whole world was under a military threat from a power far greater than the combined forces of the Soviet Union and the Republic of China. We didn't know what the EBEs wanted at first, but we knew that between the cattle mutilations, surveillance of our secret weapons installations, reports of strange abductions of human beings, and their consistent buzzing of our unmanned and manned space launches, the EBEs weren't just friendly visitors looking for a polite way to say, hello, we mean you no harm. They meant us harm, and we knew it. The problem was we couldn't do anything about it at first, and anything we did try to do had to be done in complete secrecy, or it would set off a worldwide panic, we believed. Unquote. And then let me jump to another section again, quote, Similarly, if too many flying saucers were seen by too many people at the same time, wouldn't it become obvious that the military forces of the superpowers couldn't protect their populations? For a time it was true, but the public never realized it. Soon we were able to upgrade our ability to defend our airspace so that we could amass large numbers of interceptors against the EBEs, limited resources, and pose a real threat to them. They backed off and probed our defenses only when it seemed safe. Thus, the race among the superpowers to spend billions of dollars to build the fastest and best interceptors had a true double purpose. We needed all these planes because they gave the superpowers a flexible response alternative to simply obliterating themselves with guided missiles. But at the same time, both superpowers were developing the air defense technology to defend the planet against the extraterrestrials. Everybody wants the best and fastest plane, of course, so that we can outfly and outshoot the enemy we know about. But we were also defending our skies against an enemy we didn't admit to having. 
The second agenda was always there, and the Cold War provided the budgetary impetus the military needed. We were building aircraft to protect against flying saucers. And in a very real measure, we succeeded. Unquote. So again, if you're familiar with this podcast, you're probably not surprised that I question many of those conclusions because I question some of the assumptions upon which they're based. We do not know that a singular actor is responsible for all of the different elements we see within the so-called UFO phenomenon, which again is just a convenient catchphrase we use to describe various anomalous events that seemingly are connected to UFOs, though even that we can't always be sure of. Secondly, even when I listened to Corso talk to Art Bell, Art Bell pressed him for really compelling evidence suggesting these others, these so-called aliens, were actually a threat to us, that they actually meant us harm, that they were nefarious actors. And from my point of view, Corso didn't give a very good response. It wasn't very compelling whatsoever, not very convincing whatsoever. And when you add to that, this notion that people like Corso had been at war, so to speak, for decades, coming out of World War II when they were fighting Germany and Japan, and then entering into the Cold War and fighting an adversary there. Corso and his contemporaries very much had a wartime mentality. Their brains had been rewired to think in those terms. So suddenly when these others show up, and they are buzzing our nuclear facilities and buzzing our rockets and sometimes taking our nuclear facilities offline, our nuclear weapons capability being taken offline by them. Of course, someone like Corso is not surprisingly going to interpret this as a hostile act, because if it were the Soviets doing that, of course, he would draw that conclusion. So in some ways, he's conflating the two, and I think that's where he goes wrong. Again, it's somewhat understandable based on him being a man of his time, but I still think it's an ill-advised conclusion to draw. All right, so in conclusion, what can we confidently say, or fairly confidently say, actually happened at Roswell in 1947? I'm comfortable saying an anomalous craft was involved. I'm comfortable saying beings were involved. And the American government initially acknowledged and then covered up this fact. The fact that they had no defenses against it, nor could even understand it, comprehend it really, suggests that part of the secrecy involved not wanting to broadcast vulnerability and ignorance to the public, which may have caused mass panic at worst and undermined government authority at best. Ultimately, I draw the line between objective observation of phenomena, the craft, the beings, the telepathy, the manipulation of our nuclear technology, etc., from the interpretation of what these various elements and events therefore imply about these others' origin and their ultimate agenda. Now, without question, we owe Colonel Corso a debt of gratitude for making all of this public, for redeeming the claims of ufologists throughout the 20th century that there really was a there there, that we were being visited by non-conventionally human intelligences, who wielded technology that made our best efforts look a bit like children's toys in comparison. But we also must remember that Colonel Corso was a man of his time, as I said, a man born in an era of conflict between warring human civilizations, first with the Germans and Japanese in World War II, and later with the Soviet Union, as part of a Cold War that lasted decades. And as such, he was likely prone to seeing all non-American actors and their actions as hostile, 
to the point where he seemed to simply ascribe to these others the very mentality of our nation-state adversaries of the time. Ultimately, it's these unquestioned assumptions and the interpretations they gave birth to that I am calling into question. But of course, Colonel Corso is not the only one guilty of this all-too-human tendency. We are a species quick to draw conclusions because at times in our history, this was necessary for our very survival. But when it comes to trying to make sense of the sheer bizarreness we see evidenced in the so-called UFO phenomenon, where very different species with entirely different biologies and histories are in play, this is a tendency we should do our very best to resist. As I frequently say, let's do our very best to objectively observe what's happening. Let's collate the data, looking for potential recurring patterns, possibly identifying the signature of different actors and agendas within the totality of the UFO phenomenon. And let's only draw firm conclusions if and when there is overwhelming evidence in the data suggesting we should do so, and never before. And on that note, we come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash exoacadamian. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacadamian, signing out.